I came along and it was, it, that for me was the thing that really changed my mind shift. I really had a mind shift during that because it was lovely to sit with people that were kind of in the same boat as me or not so different. Um, I saw that there was a spectrum of drinking and some of the drinking that was going on in the, uh, that the people were telling us about in the workshop, I wasn't there. But a lot of it was in my kind of comfort zone, if I can call it that. There were a lot of people there that were going through exactly the same that I was. We weren't out and out on the streets. We hadn't lost everything and were drinking out of a brown bottle on the corner. Far from it. But all of us were uncomfortable and all of us wanted to change and didn't know how. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Series two of the podcast is all about the importance of taking a break from alcohol as we launch our third Sober Spring Challenge. Sober Spring starts on the 21st of September and provides online audio and community support for 66 alcohol-free days. So we're going to be interviewing people who've done Sober Spring in the past because we want to give you an insight into how it feels to try a prolonged period without alcohol. After all, when did you last go 66 days without alcohol? Now today's interview is with Sheila, who did Sober Spring last year, and it proved to be a springboard for dramatically improving her relationship with alcohol. So let's hear more of the story from Sheila herself. Yeah, I'm 53 years old. I live in Cape Town. I've lived here for most of my adult life. Um, I'm married for the second time round to an absolute food and winophile. And I have two grown-up children, one of whom stays with me still. He's a student, my son and, uh, and a daughter. And yeah, I'm I'm a very busy career person. I have a, a career in in the medical industry. I'm a pharmacist by trade from a long time ago, but um, for the last 20 years or so, we've been running a business and managing a business that does medical devices into South Africa. So we have a big wholesale business and that keeps me busy. So let's let's go back a few years. When did you first start thinking, Sheila, that maybe you had a bit of a problem with alcohol and you wanted to make a few changes? Was that a long time ago or relatively recently? Um, I'd say the awareness really grew over the last couple of years. Uh, from the time as I turned 50 and I started to, I think, just get a bit more sensitive as we age and I started to realize and be aware that I was drinking more and more and I was drinking every single day 
And every morning I would start to feel this awful guilt and just I was just feeling off every morning. And every day I would drive to work thinking, oh, I'm not really, I shouldn't have had so much to drink last night. I shouldn't have had that extra glass of wine. I shouldn't have had that whiskey. And tonight I won't drink. And I think for a couple of months, I gave up every single morning at about eight o'clock. <laughs> and I broke it every single night at about half past five, six o'clock when I came home. So it, it gradually, it, it got, it built up more and more. And I just realized I wasn't actually going anywhere with it. And at the same time, I was starting to feel more and more anxious. I realized I wasn't really coping with what was going on in my life. And my anxiety levels were getting higher and higher. And I couldn't understand why. I just was wondering if that was just what happens to people. And of course, you read everything about menopause and being at this age. And everything is going to tell you when you hit 50, you're not going to sleep very well. And your anxiety is going to go up. Not many people say to you, well, perhaps cut down on, on the alcohol. And uh, yeah, you just, it, it positively reinforces all the things that perhaps aren't causing what's going on in your life. Exactly. So bearing in mind that you were having all these uneasy thoughts, did, did you ever try to stop for a block of time or to drink a little bit less? Did you do dry January, that kind of thing? I didn't. I didn't do any of that. I just thought a lot about it. So <laughs> that's fine, Sheila. You were in the contemplation phase. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I kind of had this nagging realization, but I was very much buying into the fact and, and all the stuff that's out there that this is great. This isn't a problem. This that actually these are the solutions and this is a wonderful adult coping skill. So I was very much buying into that. Um that conversation yeah. that's out there and going on all the time. Interesting. So that means that your your conscious mind was was nagging you, telling you to, to make a change, especially at 8 a.m. in the morning, yet your subconscious mind was saying, oh, this is a great way to self-medicate and it's the menopause and all the other, you know, excuses that we give ourselves. Mm. So you signed up for Sober Spring. Just remind me, was it 2019? Or the year before, because this um, was our third year now. So was it the first year? I actually, I, I don't know. It must have been last year because a couple of months later I did the workshop, and I know I did my workshop in November. So it must okay. have been last year. But I came along very much with the attitude of, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll do a month. I didn't, right. 66 days seemed impossibly long. And I just decided I'm going to do it from the beginning of a month to the end of the month. And if I do that, I'll be sure I don't have a problem. And then I'll know that I don't have a problem if I can do 30 days. So that was that was the attitude I came into it with. It was... Yeah, well, well, you were right in that it's a fantastic way to test your dependence because if you breeze through it, then there's obviously no problem. But uh, how did it pan out for you? Tell us everything. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Well, it definitely wasn't a breeze. It was, I, I gritted my teeth and I... I hated every minute of it. I was determined to get through and therefore prove I had no problem. So I did. Um, it was difficult. I had to steal myself every single day, managed to get myself through 30 days. 
and then just carried on drinking again because I'd proved that I didn't have a problem. So there was no problem. That's that's very interesting. I used to do that back in my drinking days. I would do dry January every year. And it was literally to prove that I didn't have a problem because my worst fear was that I would have a problem, that I did have a problem, and I would have to stop completely. So I thought, if I just if I can do this every year, then I'm fine. I don't have a problem. But I think the fact that, you know, we grit our teeth and we, we hate it is an indicator that we've got a problem. <laughs> you can talk yourself out of that so quickly, can't you? Because okay. that's what I did. I was like, I'm surely fine now. I'm okay. really super. There's There's nothing going on here. So you did your 30 days, then you started drinking, and then what happened? I was I was going back to my half past eight in the morning sessions of wanting to give up. I Something came up on Facebook that offered one of your workshops. I was like, should I do this? You know, I really enjoy doing a whole lot of online learning and other learning stuff. And, you know, I'd still like to cut down. So maybe I should just go along and do this workshop. I'll just try. And was on a day that I was free and I was like, yeah, I think I still think this nagging feeling that I need to slow down. So let me give this a try and see if this actually works for me. So, so you came to the workshop. So uh, tell us about the workshop. Well, I nearly didn't come because I woke up that Saturday morning thinking, oh, what a pain. I like, I, <laughs> I really had this like, what? A, why did I pay this money? What have I signed up for? And I spent about half an hour debating like, should I go? Shouldn't I go? And then I decided, well, look, I'm going to go. And if it's boring, I'll leave. So I was, I was definitely in there with, with just one foot in the water. And um, I came along and it was, it, that for me was the thing that really changed my mind shift. I really had a mind shift during that because it was lovely to sit with people that were kind of in the same boat as me or not so different. Um, I saw that there was a spectrum of drinking and some of the drinking that was going on and that the people were telling us about in the workshop, I wasn't there. But a lot of it was in my kind of comfort zone, if I can call it that. There were a lot of people there that were going through exactly the same that I was. We weren't out and out on the streets. We hadn't lost everything and were drinking out of a brown bottle on the corner. Far from it. But all of us were uncomfortable and all of us wanted to change and didn't know how. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what happens, isn't it? We have this nagging voice in our head that keeps telling us you're drinking too much, you need to make a change, but we've no idea how to do that. And I think yeah. your example is classy, you know, waking up in the morning thinking, oh, I don't feel good, I'm going to stop this. And then six o'clock in the evening, it's like, well, it's six o'clock, I'm going to have a drink now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and as you say, people on the workshops, they vary. There's people with severe problems and people, you know, with not very severe problems, but it's we can all still relate to each other. And I think it demonstrates that it's a bit of a slippery slope because if you don't do anything about it, then it's very likely that it will gradually get worse because it's, um, it's slow, but it, it's always always there. And you find yourself, I mean, I, I could drink, towards the end of my drinking career, I could drink two bottles of wine and I would feel nothing at all. And wow. you know, that's scary because it proves that your tolerance is all over the place. And then I would have maybe one glass, a big glass at lunchtime, and I'd get a huge buzz from it. So uh, I think, you know, as a pharmacist, you know all about these chemicals that are going crazy in our bodies. You know, you would, you would think so, but I think there's such a blind spot there for so many people. 
it's very much, even in the years when I was a pharmacist, there was no real training of, for us to, to discuss alcohol with people. And when I've been to the doctor for, for anxiety or anything like that, that's not part of the conversation. The alcohol really mm-hmm. isn't. So even though we know and we're trained, we know that it's a, that's a, it's a chemical and it's coming into your body. It's not something that's – the two are kind of so separated from each other um, that it's not really even considered part of medicine per se. It doesn't have big warning bells out there somehow. And I think you see on the group as well, a lot of people say, like, I didn't realize that this was the cause of my problems or contributing towards my problems or even interfering with my meds. But I think a lot of that is us when we go to the doctor and the doctor says, how much are you drinking? I think we divide it a little bit, hey? Yeah, and they say that the doctor always doubles it. (laughs) Maybe it compensates then. (laughs) But it's true that doctors don't raise it. I mean, I had breast cancer a long time ago, 13 years ago, and I was drinking like a trooper back in those days. Nobody mentioned it. And I I went through chemotherapy, mastectomy, all that. And I remember just as I was kind of moving out of it, I had a last conversation with the oncologist and I said, um, okay, so just tell me what should I be eating? What should I be drinking? Give me any guidelines and I promise you that I'll stick to it because I don't want to go through this again. And he said, he said, you've come through this, just enjoy life, eat and drink and be merry. You know, and that's a senior oncologist telling me that. So of course I did. I was coaching somebody recently and she'd been in therapy for three years about her anxiety and, you know, going every week and, you know, feeling that she wasn't getting anywhere. So she she did the workshop, Stop Drinking, and she did coaching uh, with me for three months. And at the end of three months, she felt fantastic and uh, she gave up her meds and the therapy because the anxiety was just gone. Mm. And I think it's amazing that therapists aren't raising that. You know, some therapists, maybe many of them are, but uh, it's really, I think it's something at the first visit that a doctor or a therapist should be asking, you know, and have the honest conversation about alcohol. Yeah. As a pharmacist, I'm just interested. I know you haven't uh, practiced for a long time, but were you guys aware of the link between cancer and alcohol? And Even now, no. it's very much not. But I, I really do think that alcohol forms a blind spot because it's so socially yeah. acceptable. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a drug, but it's a normalized drug. It's completely normalized, and everybody buys into the fact that it's so good for you. Everybody is... It's great for your health. You should be doing it. I mean, that's pretty much the message that's out there. Yeah, nobody's giving you any other information. Yeah, society has bought into it, and so have all of the health. Well, not all of them, but it's not general information out there, and it's really a basic. And a couple of doctors I have discussed it with haven't really been that, yeah, they haven't really been that engaged with it. A lot of them have gone, well, you know, it's difficult. We, We have a glass or two of wine every night. Yeah, many doctors have got a bit of a problem, actually. <laughs> Where does that leave us? But the, the thing about alcohol being good for you is quite interesting because there was a study done uh, with women 
between the ages of, say, um, 53 and 60. And those women were given, were asked to drink one glass of wine in the evening, one glass of red wine. And then the control group was another group of ladies who didn't drink. And then they compared their heart health and and, I th- and this study, uh, and the women that were drinking one glass of wine a night, a small glass, their heart health was slightly better. So that's one study. And the papers, you know, the, the media just fell on that like um, <laughs> hungry oh, yeah. animals. Yeah. And it was everywhere, you know, in all the press. And even to this day, I mean, the study is old now. But even to this day, the alcohol industry is paying the media to keep publishing that. Mm. And I think until um, we stop allowing alcohol to be advertised everywhere, that, that's not going to change because the media, I mean, I was talking to a lady who worked for a very well-known magazine the other day, and I said, oh, you should write a story about us. And and she said, I'd love to, but 70% of our revenue from the magazine uh, comes from the liquor industry. So there's no way I'm going to write about, you know, what you do. So that means that the editorial content is is censored by the liquor industry. Yeah. So, you know, the, the information just isn't in the public domain yet. No, It's like and- cigarettes used to be. Well, it's like, well, I mean, if you look at big pharma and big data, those are all things that have been regulated now. So, you know, those kind of studies, if they were gone, if they were done through proper pharmaceutical trials now, you would have people that were very cautious and would read them properly and look at it in the light of a pharmaceutical company and do it like that. But the whole, the whole, there's no regulation around the alcohol. And, um, yeah, it's such a complex problem in society, isn't it? It really it is. is. It is, especially in South Africa, as we've seen recently with the, the lockdown. Uh, let's let's go back to Sheila for a moment. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you came to the workshop. So what did you decide to do after the workshop? Did you sign up for another challenge or what? Well, you were quite sneaky on the workshop. You said to everybody, <laughs> <laughs> if you're here, you, you, have, a, you have an issue. And... Why don't you just commit? Why don't you stand? I think at the end of the workshop, I presume you do it at all of them. You said, stand up and commit to a certain number of days. And at no stage was I going to stand up and commit to 100 days or some of the. So I, I committed to another 30 days. I thought, well, I think that's something I've done it once. I can do it again. But what really, really struck me at the workshop was the the health aspects that you gave us and the guidelines and the fact that it should only be a bottle and a half per week is the safe guideline for women. And I looked at the amount I was drinking and it was a lot. I was drinking as I got home in the evening a glass of wine while we were preparing supper, another glass of wine while we were eating our supper and then another glass of wine after that. So that was already probably most of a bottle of wine every night. And on Saturdays and Sundays, I would be having a glass of wine with lunch or a beer with lunch. And I looked at the volume of what I was drinking as somebody that had no problem with alcohol, according to me, because I'd done my challenge and I was fine. But there was a problem. And according to everybody else, um, I wasn't blacking out. I wasn't having wild parties where I couldn't remember. I wasn't having hangovers that I felt so dreadful or that I was terribly ill. 
but uh, I realized the volume I was drinking was absolutely frightening compared to what the safe limit was. And then I realized, no, this I have to change everything here. I have to really have a hard look at this and, and do things differently. So what happened? 30 days? More than 30? 30 days. And it was, it was a challenging time because your workshop was in November. So that means end of year functions for work, um, all the social stuff that happens around Christmas and Christmas Day coming up. So I, I'd said to myself, well, whatever happens going forwards, I'll do my 30 days. But my whole target is to, to see what those limits actually feel like for me. I did the 30 days. I started going out and drinking and finding it that I actually could enjoy myself. And I was fine. I chatted with everybody. I got bored quicker than I normally do at social functions. But I was fine. I didn't, I didn't have to have any alcohol. Christmas, my son's 21st came up. That was quite a challenge because, you know, there's the anxiety, having to give a speech, having all these young people around you drinking like crazy. But I managed not to have anything to drink during that, which I was very surprised at. And I, I did feel I had that wonderful feeling the next day where the only thing that was sore on me were my feet from walking around in high heel shoes. <laughs> so that was, that was good. And then Christmas Day itself, I took some non-alcoholic, um, I took some Duchess along with me. And I sipped that all of Christmas, and I was the one that was driving home, and it was actually fine. It was it was a bit flatter maybe than than every all the other social events were, but it wasn't the end of the world. It was doable. It was doable. So I I did Christmas fine. Um, New Year, I think I had a glass or two of champagne, and then I decided that's it. I'm not going back to that every day. I'm going to do my Monday to Friday. I had my tracker with me. Sun, from Sunday night to, to Thursday, I don't have anything to drink. And I have a glass of wine, maybe two glasses, but never, ever more over a weekend than a bottle of bottle and a half. And I've, that's become my new normal. That's my habit. It was difficult in the beginning. Um, well done. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So you're one of these rare people that are able to drink within the limits, even though before that you were, you were drinking too much. Way too much. So well done for that. But I would also advise, you know, people that want to moderate, and there are many, that uh, you succeeded because you had that long break and you had a mind shift and you educated yourself about the limits. So you were coming at it from a different angle. Because I think to, to go from drinking a bottle of wine a night, as I was, to then only having like one glass on a Friday night, that, that's very, very hard. But if you create a gap, you're, you know, reach, you're changing the wiring in your brain and you're changing the habits, and it is possible. So that's, that's great, Sheila. Well, I'm really pleased for you. So with your experience, uh, how important do you think it is that people take regular breaks from alcohol? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah, I would say it's vital. The, the breaks are the first step. But the, really the education and the mind shift, the thinking about how we're thinking about alcohol, to look at the advertising that's going on. And I think for me the most important thing was examining what was going on inside of me, to look at why is it that it's a, that it's a Monday night or a Tuesday night and I feel like I, I have to have a glass of wine. 
Or even worse for me, it was during the day when I realized, gosh, that was a difficult conversation. Whew, I need a glass of wine tonight for that. Or, wow, we put together an amazing deal. I need a glass of wine tonight for that. And I, that was for me a huge shift that happened as well, was to realize that the only thing I would do is have everything revolved around a glass of wine, whether it was a reward or a punishment or a good feeling or a bad feeling. That was my only my only coping skill for everything. And when I realized that, I realized that's that's not doesn't have the depth of a life that I actually want to have. It's not dealing with anything. It's just pushing everything into Yes, it's just stuff. numbing things, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting what you've said about the mind shift, because I, I totally agree with you there. I think that's so much more powerful than willpower. Because when we both went through a month and we were gritting our teeth and longing for it to be over, we were surviving on on uh, willpower. We hadn't had the mind shift at that yeah. point. But once you realize, you know, how powerful this is and how we're brainwashed by the uh, the marketing industry, the liquor industry, it, it just becomes easier then. You can, can see through it all. Yeah, and I started to really like the fact that I had that education now and that I could see through the advertising or look at the advertising and go, yeah. that's really unfair. And I started to really be so proud of myself to to come from that space now of being kind and saying like, wow, I'm feeling this craving, but the answer is not to actually give in. The answer is to sit and, and think through why I was anxious during that presentation or why that phone call wasn't so good or why I'm feeling ashamed or embarrassed or guilty and actually to work through that. And then I started to feel really, it was like a positive reinforcement of being able to do it, really rediscovering what I used to be before it was all that heavy drinking, yeah. going back to a person that I actually realized I liked. So let's talk about the benefits of alcohol-free life. I mean, you, you've touched on those a little bit already by saying that you, you, you like the way you can analyze what's really going on here rather than just numbing it and not thinking about it. What, what else do you think? Well, for me, it's given me that, that time that everybody speaks of, but um, not so much time during the day because I'm very, very busy with, with work and yeah, my days are, are completely jam-packed, but I found a wonderful, peaceful hour. I see you also get up at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Wonderful. I, I woke up one morning at about four o'clock and I just woke up to the surge of joy. It was like, wow, I have a wonderful life. I'm feeling so happy. And it was such a lovely feeling that I hadn't had for so long. And now I, I get up every day at five o'clock, I make two cups of coffee, I come back, I journal, I write, I'm doing some online courses at the moment, I do some yoga in the morning, and it's an absolute gift. And every morning that I have those, I'm so grateful for the night before when I didn't have anything to drink, that I have yeah. this daily gift that I give to myself. And it's just the most amazing, beautiful, growing time. Um, really peaceful and wonderful. So that for me has been my biggest, that's my selfish gift because that's the time that I wouldn't give up for anything now. When I, Even when I'm having my glass of wine on a Saturday or Sunday, I'm like, 
there's no ways I'm going to have more than this because I want to be up at five. It sounds bizarre. I mean, if I told my 20-year-old self, no. I would have thought, shame, crazy old lady. But <laughs> <laughs> I love that time. That's really, really yeah. special. Yeah, I love that too. It's just I wake up in the morning, you know, early, as you know, and I just can't wait for the day to start, you know, because mm. I've got so many things going on that I'm enjoying. And Yeah, I think the – because when we, when we drink a lot, we're, we're looking for chemical highs, aren't we? We're looking for the buzz. And my life when I was a drinker, it was full of ups and downs. You know, I had some real highs, some amazing times that I will never forget. But I also had some terrible lows as well. Whereas these days, I just, you know, I'm content and happy. And it's a, maybe it's a lower level happiness than that huge chemical spike I used to get. But it, it's great and it's like peace and it, it it's lasting. And I think that's, yeah. uh, that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what everybody, if you actually ask them and you have a serious conversation, is looking for that inner peace and that quiet joy. It, nobody really wants that terribly excited life because it does come often with those downs. Yeah. And I think yeah. I'd say that's what I've found. I've found that inner peace. And when it's not peaceful, it's okay to be not happy all the time. It really is okay to be sad or depressed or working through something because it's something that you're not hiding anymore. I don't know how exactly. to say it's authentic. Yeah, it's part of the human condition, isn't it, to uh, to be happy sometimes, to be sad sometimes. I mean, we're not put on earth to be happy 24-7, are we? We're bound no. to go up and go down and we'll only appreciate the good days because we've had some bad days. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is to be authentic and to be in touch with how we're feeling, as you say. Uh, so we've already touched on this a little bit, but any more thoughts on the role of alcohol in global society, the way it's been normalised, the fact that we didn't talk about the reaction of your friends, did we? Were you cons Are you considered a little strange these days, <laughs> a little eccentric, with your one glass of wine on a Friday night? Uh, well, maybe lockdown has actually been great for that because our social lives have been so curtailed. The person who who's actually been quite challenging has actually ended up being my husband because he's found it very, quite difficult. We we have three wine fridges at home and they're not small ones. They are they're like floor to ceiling wine fridges full of the most amazing wine that you can buy in South Africa and the rest of the world. We have French wines for when we do duck breast. We have French champagne. We really have amazing wine. And he kept on saying to me, but why aren't you having a glass of wine tonight? And I was just like, no, I don't feel like it. I didn't really want to get into it with him until the last, I'd say, month. Where I said to him, did you ever realize that when we were opening that bottle of wine every night, you were having a tiny glass with supper? And I was finishing the rest of it every single night. And he, I could see him thinking about it, and he'd actually never seen it. And that's, he always, he said to me, but you don't really don't have a problem, or you didn't have a problem. But I did. And now he's really understanding. And when I've when I've shown him how the anxiety has gone, that's a change that he can definitely see. But I think he's also found it hard to realize that the alcohol, first of all, that I was drinking that much because it was like you, you couldn't see it, couldn't feel it, that it was actually having such an effect on me. So for my friends, I've been quite open with them because I think I've gone enough, I've gone far enough down the road now to be able to say, look, I 
I've been struggling with anxiety. And when you put it in terms of that, people really do understand. And that I found that when I drink, I get even more anxious. That's been my way of of actually being open enough to people and making myself vulnerable. It was hard in the beginning because nobody likes to admit that things are falling apart. We all like to present this lovely face and everything's fine. But when I've when I've said it like that, people are more understanding. And then it often leads to conversations where they're also finding life's actually a bit hard. Yeah, the anxiety thing, one of my favorite memes that I'm always using, I'm sure you've seen it on some of my social media, pouring alcohol uh, on anxiety is like pouring gasoline on a fire. It goes crazy. It is, but it takes a long time to realize that because it definitely feels like the thing you need when you're feeling anxious. So we're coming to the end of our chat now, Sheila. Um, we're going to launch our third Sober Spring Challenge in a few days on the 1st of September. Uh, what would you say to people who might be listening to this and thinking, hmm, shall I sign up? Maybe just for 30 days like you did. <laughs> Do you think they should give it a go? I would say to anybody, try it. Don't expect it to be super easy. If, you, if you're all sober curious, and if that mm. piqued your interest at all, try it and perhaps be prepared for some harder times than you expected and be prepared to look at them. And even if it is 30 days of gritting your teeth and hanging in there and being that miserable sober person in the room, which I think I was on my 30 days, I was really hanging on by my toenails, um, that in itself is going to say something to you. So so try it. It's the big, it doesn't have to be the answer. It can be the beginning of the road. And I love what you say about get curious. I mean, that's a whole movement these days. Have you heard about the sober curious movement? Young people are trying, you know, life without alcohol to see what it's like. And yeah, just to be curious. And I like the way that you journal a lot uh, still, because we say to people, you know, track your journey, track your 66 days, write up your journal every night, you know, even if it's just to say, oh, you know, what a miserable time. Just <laughs> write it down, process those emotions. And then when you do go through the, the bad patch and come out the other side, you can read back and see, see how things have changed. Mm. So yeah, let's get curious. And anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? What I'd like to say is thank you to you and the organization that you run there because it's been a very non-judgmental place for me to come and explore and to learn. And I think that I've never felt bad about having a glass of wine. And I think it's it's very supportive to see other people all coming at it from different angles and in different different spaces but to just have that community the whatsapp group is truly phenomenal um, the membership for the whatsapp group is great it's lots of messages but it's a positive reinforcement every day that this is such a wonderful choice and that we can lead a, a better a better happier life out there through some simple changes yeah, yeah. I, I'm loving the community as well. I love the fact that we've now got quite a body of people that have been alcohol free for a while, yet they're now helping the newbies and being sober buddies. We've we've really got a fabulous community. So I'm very grateful. Yeah, yeah, it's a safe place. So thank you. Thanks so much, Sheila. What an inspiring story. So as usual, I've pulled out a few points from our conversation. 
the first thing that struck me was Sheila signed up for Sober Spring only intending to do one month. It was quite unusual, actually. I haven't found anyone else that joined and said, I'll do this, but only for a month, because she decided a month was quite enough. That would prove that she didn't have a problem. So she gritted her teeth and got through that month, probably using willpower. However, it did get her thinking. I mean, that is the very least that Sober Spring will do for you. It'll raise your awareness of your relationship with alcohol and get you thinking. Because she was thinking about her relationship and thinking maybe she was on a bit of a slippery slope because she was still drinking every day, maybe she would come to a workshop and get some tools to make a change. So she came along and the workshop was a bit of a turning point for her. It created a real mind shift. And I think, as we've said on these podcasts before, it's not about willpower. It's about a mind shift if you want to change your relationship with alcohol. And she also really enjoyed connecting with other people on the same path. She mentioned the spectrum. And I've also talked about this in the past, the the fact that We put the alcoholic in a box. We think, oh, it's just that homeless man in the park. It's nothing to do with me. Whereas, in fact, between that homeless man in the park and the person that never drinks at all, there are millions of us, and we're all at various stages along that spectrum. And it is a slippery slope. And some people end up at the wrong end of that slippery slope. And it's, uh, what's that stat again? 20% of regular drinkers will uh, develop a dependence as they go through the years. Another thing she learnt on the workshop that shocked her was that uh, the safe limits of alcohol uh, for wine is just one and a half bottles a week. And she was definitely drinking more than that. The workshop was in late November, so she felt pretty strong going ahead into the festive season. She managed to get through the work function. She got through Christmas Day, both alcohol-free, And on New Year's Eve, she indulged in a glass of champagne. She started 2020 with a plan. She was armed with her World Without Wine annual tracker, designed by Lucy in the UK. And she decided that she was going to uh, not drink in the week. From Monday to Thursday, she would not have anything. And then she'd have a glass of wine on on Friday, sorry, and maybe another one at the weekend. And that's her new normal, and amazingly, she's managed to stick to it for all of these months. I mean, we're now in September, and she started doing this in in January. So that's her new normal. So I think she's really cracked it there. She is one of these really rare people who's been drinking every day for quite a while, but she's managed to pull back and now drink just within the safe limits. So well done, Sheila. You really rock. So let's summarise her path to success. She used Sober Spring to raise her awareness and then she came to the workshop to learn some new tools and meet other people on the same path. She took an extended alcohol-free break and then she used her tracker to ensure that she kept to her plan. And it all started with Sober Spring. We've got a whole bunch of fabulous people on our current Sober Spring bus that left town on the 1st of September. But don't despair if you miss that bus because there's another bus, our second and final bus. It leaves on the 21st of September. So you can get more info and sign in 
So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share. See you next time. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.